Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. And uh, this is our Communion Sunday, and I usually change it up. We're in the book of Revelation normally, but for our Communion Sunday this year, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes, that crazy book, uh, the Debbie Downer book, where just nothing matters. Everything is meaningless. Why do we even exist? Why are we even here? And I've entitled the series Middle Earth mainly just to have fun, kind of a play on words, because some of you are familiar with the concept of Middle Earth from Tolkien. But really, if you think about Scripture, whether it's more metaphorically or, or reality, Scripture kind of paints the idea of Earth being in the middle. Uh, whenever it talks about death or Hades or hell, it's always this concept of you're going down. And then whenever it talks about divine things or heaven, it's always with a concept of things that are above. And so um, I wanted to, us to look at a book that talks about the things that are here on this earth because Revelation is all from a kingdom perspective. That's why there's a lot of symbolism used in the book of Revelation. So earth is where we have our beginning. Earth is where we dwell for now. Earth is an important place. It's where we grow. It's where we mature. It's where we hammer out life, figure out life. And earth is where we make important decisions. As a matter of fact, the most important decision that we will ever make is made here on earth. It's not made down there after we die, if you believe in that. And it's not made up there after we die. The decision that we make here in middle earth, if you will, is a decision that will carry us into the next life. And that's the decision about God's plan of salvation. That's the decision about God's Son. In the Old Testament, God promised this broken world and a, a world filled with sin people because of the fallen nature due to the rebellion of man. He promised that He would save a, send a Savior and a King. He made that promise to restore things. And then in the New Testament... That promise arrived in the form of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel has gone out since that time. It was in seed form in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament for over 2,000 years. The good news that, that has been proclaimed to mankind, that there's forgiveness of sins, that there's a way back to God, there's a way back to restoration that's been heralded. And it's here on earth that we, we wrestle with these kind of things. It's Here on earth, when we decide, what am I going to do with the good news? What am I going to do with this gospel? What do I do with this concept of God? And it's that decision that will carry us into the next life that we will will have to live with. God promises eternal life and restoration. So from Scripture's perspective, if that's the decision we make, we repent of our sins and we just recognize God as the one and only true God, then he says, you'll live forever with me in paradise. So there's not, so Middle Earth is where we hammer out decisions. Not, not every decision is carried over to the next life. I know that decisions uh, have an impact on uh, forming us, helping us to grow, helping us to mature. Uh, it, it formulizes our will. We decide who we're going to be or what we are based on our decisions that we make, but not all decisions are carried over. There's also a sense in which when you die on earth, then your obligations on earth, good and bad, they're finished. 
They don't carry in. So if you owe some money, somebody money, uh, you, they, you can't be accountable to pay that debt if you're no longer here to pay it. But when it comes to salvation, when we die, we are accountable to God for that decision. Uh, even after our death. And that decision is made here and eternity is a long time. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a uh, kind of a puzzling and difficult book. It's not a peppy sermon, even though he calls himself the preacher. There's not, not a whole lot peppy about it. Every once in a while you get a little bit of hope and light in these chapters. But what Solomon does in this book is he looks at life, Middle Earth, if you will, from the perspective as if there is no God. There's no above. All we have is what we can see. All we have is the, the physical, not the metaphysical. And so how does that change life? How does that change the way we look at each other? How does that change how we process and reason? And how does it change the decisions we make? How we look at different things. You know, if there's no afterlife, certainly it will change our, after, our outlook on things. If there's no God, then there's no afterlife. And if there's no afterlife, then I'm not accountable to anybody, which means my decisions that I make here on earth, I'm not held accountable for those decisions. If I'm not held accountable for any decision that I make on this earth and in some kind of afterlife, since there is no afterlife, then are my decisions really even that important? I mean, if they just stay right here in this lifetime, what's the big deal? And if my decisions that I make on a daily basis really aren't that important, then am I even really that important? And if I'm not really even that important, then what's the meaning of life? Why am I, why am I even here? What is my purpose? Why do I do anything that I do? So there's, it affects the way we think, and there's a spiral that, uh, that takes place here that brings us down or brings us up. And so King Solomon, the author, and we'll talk about him in a minute, he is wrestling with these things. And he, I think, if anything, this book... Uh, causes us to wrestle with the big questions of life because these are things that we need to be firm about and we need to live consistently with what we say that what we say we believe so how do we find meaning that's the dilemma why do anything it's all meaningless he will say and that is the problem if there's no such thing as an ultimate treasure, if there's no such thing as a final reward or a goal, then that really dampens the decisions that we make on a daily basis. And if there's no meaning and purpose up there and we have to find it here, then what is it? What is the ultimate meaning that we can find in this world? Is it fame? Is that what we should seek after as our treasure that will satisfy our hearts? Is it power? You know, is, is it sex is it money we see all these things we're in a culture we're surrounded by all the pursuits of these kind of things and uh, our, our fellow mankind trying to satisfy this hunger in their hearts with the things just that are simply of this earth everybody's looking for the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and so ecclesiastes wrestles with this solomon wrestles with this it's what the book is 
about. What does it really take to satisfy man's heart and his soul? And can it be found, Booney boy? Since he's in my family, I can call him out. I wouldn't do that. Well, I probably would do that to other kids, but I just recognize that. Sorry about that little interruption. So this um, book is written by King Solomon, the son of King David. Now, Solomon had a lot of things, but uh, he didn't have a perfect life. That's for sure. And, you know, we talk a lot about broken families in our culture, and we, we see that, and we see the consequences of it. But broken families are not new to our culture. Solomon was from a broken family. His, his father, King David, yeah, he had a complicated love life. Um, he had uh, eight wives. And his first was uh, Michal, or Michal, I think is the proper way to pronounce that. That was the first king of Israel's daughter, King Saul's daughter. And she flung a craven on David. She had a crush on David. And so King Saul decided to use that for evil means. He said, okay, I see where this is going. And so he desired to uh, give David his daughter as a wife. But he had to pay the price for it. And the price that he came up with was just a hundred Philistine foreskins. And then you can have my daughter. As your reward, the whole idea was that this is an impossibility for him to go out and get, and surely he will die because King Saul was not real crazy about David. He was very jealous of David's anointing and David's uh, spiritual and military successes. So it was supposed to be his end or to rid him of David, and yet David succeeded in this, and so that was his first wife. His last wife, you'll know of as Bathsheba. And that total relationship was was a result of David's just pure lust. He saw something, he lusted for it. That lust turned into uh, murder. Not just adultery, but murder. Where he had her husband killed. They had a child together. And you know the story, that first child died. And that was one of the consequences of David's sin. But David and Bathsheba, his last wife of eight, also had a second child. And they named him Solomon. So that's his background. His dad basically stole or took his mom from her beloved husband and made a family that way. When David grew older and had to um, acknowledge or passed down the kingship to one of his siblings, or one of his sons, I'm sorry, by Solomon. There was 18 um, half-siblings, I guess you'd say, that Solomon had. So he had to figure out which one do I pass the kingdom to, and he passed it to Solomon. He, he appointed him as the king. And now this was his charge to his son Solomon in 1 Kings 2. When David... Time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. See, that concept of, you know, we're here on earth, middle earth, I'll inject that in there. We're here on earth, and then I'm about to go where everybody goes, to the next life. We're all just passing through. 
He says, be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to the way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now, had Solomon heeded that advice, we probably wouldn't have the book of Ecclesiastes. But he spent seasons of his life walking away from God, disobeying God, rebelling against God, and so he experienced the physical consequences of that, but also the consequences in our hearts. You know, when we walk away from God, when we deny God, when we ignore God, when we disobey God, it doesn't just affect us on the outside, it affects us on the inside because we were created to obey Him. We were created to delight in Him and His commands because they're good. And when we don't, it hurts and it causes angst and loneliness and and we seek for things in the wrong place. But because He sought for things in the wrong place, we have this book and it really reveals a troubled heart, mind, and soul. In 1 Kings, in the early chapters, it tells us that, you know, King Solomon, he, he, he desired God. I think he loved God. But at the same time, he made unwise, unwise decisions. He, one of his first steps was to make an alliance with Egypt and marry Pharaoh's daughter. And just, it was compromise after compromise, and his life just spiraled down. God appeared to Solomon in a dream as the new king. And what a good God he is. And he, he asked King Solomon in 1 Kings 3, 5, Ask what I shall give you. Ask what I shall give you. This is, God comes to him in a dream. He says, ask what I shall give you. Ask of anything, ask anything good of me. And I will give it to you. Now, how many times does that happen in life? How many times do we read that kind of encounter in Scripture where God literally says, ask of me and I will give it to you? What would you say? I thought to myself, what would I say if God came to me in a dream and said, you... So in other words, what's the greatest desire in your heart? If you had one shot, God's not a genie. But if you had one shot in this case, what would it be? Would it be power? Would it be fame? What is that thing that, if you could have that one thing, what would it be? Better looks? More hair? An IQ bigger than my waist size? What, you know, what, what would it be here? And Solomon asked for wisdom. And you've got to love it. I want to read it to you in 1 Kings 3.9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? That's an impressive answer, isn't it? That's humble. Well, you know, I'm in this position, divinely appointed as king over your people, to serve you, and I'm young. I want to do it well, so I want to ask for wisdom. Help me to shepherd your people, to lead your people. 
Well, not only did that impress me as I read it, well, it also impressed God. And he says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, things that we might, others might choose, or the life of your enemies, you know, vengeance, just get rid of this person and my life will be so much better. But you've asked for yourself understanding to discern what's right. Behold, I now... Do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that there will be none like you has ever, uh, so that none like you has been before you. None like you shall ever be after you. It's that kind of anointing and that kind of empowering that God's going to give Solomon. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. 1 Kings 3, 10 through 14. So I I say all that so that we understand Solomon's life, a little bit about him and what he's working with. This is a man with with supernatural wisdom, God-given wisdom, but also God-given riches, God-given fame. So he's, he's on the top of life, if you will. He's on the top of the food chain. He has like resources, endless resources at the ends of his fingers. And he's got this this smart way of thinking to order life and understand life and to rule life and to go after things. He's He's a deep thinker. He's a philosopher. You know, he wrote three books of the Bible. He wrote, um, I think, about a thousand psalms. And over 3,000 proverbs. And in his day, he truly was renowned. People came, other kings came from all over the world to see this great thing, this great kingdom of the king, and also just to hear him speak. He was that kind of person. He was that smart. And we like to think of the pursuit of wisdom coming from the Greeks, you know, in the three or four hundred BCs, that they were the ones that sought truth. They were the ones that tried to find beauty and wonder and the important things of life, Heraclitus and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Solomon's 900 BC. He's 400 years before them thinking about the deep things of life. The Jews didn't have a lot to do with Greek philosophy because they didn't think they needed to find it the meaning of life out there, it had been revealed to them by their one and only God. And so they didn't didn't have to spend the time figuring these kind of things out, and of course, unless they forsook him. So Solomon, in essence, started out, you say, worshiping God. He loved God. He wanted to do God's will. He worshiped the right God, but he began to worship him in the wrong way, you might say. He compromised, and he married a lot of foreign women and they brought their worldviews and they brought their gods in and there was some kind of syncretism there and he began to, um, though he was king of Israel, he began to uh, practice some pagan worship. He became more inclined to do that. At one time he had, as you know, 700 wives. What a wonderful thing to be known for or go down in history for 700 wives and 300 concubines. As far as I know, he gets the blue ribbon for that. And as far as I'm concerned, he can have it. 
It's with this colorful background of divine wisdom and worldly living that Solomon draws this conclusion in the first two um, couple verses in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. And this is how he starts his book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher or the teacher or the philosopher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And that term under the sun means this is all there is. There's nothing above the sun. That's the, the perspective there that he keeps pretty consistently. He, God leaks out. His um, worldview of knowing God leaks out here and there. And we will see that. And meaningless, the vanities, it just means it's meaningless. It's meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. All of this toil, everything. that Mankind is so busy doing all of this thing, all of this, and it doesn't mean a thing. It's, it's meaningless. So why does man gain? Or what does man gain? How would you answer that question? Like, what are you doing with your life? What, what do you think you're accomplishing? Where do you think you're going with all that? Where's this passion and desire? Why are you pursuing that? Or why are you pursuing this? What do you hope to accomplish? What kind of meaning do you think that that gives to you? How do you know that you're going to make a difference with anything you do? How do you not know that you're not just wasting your life? Now, these, are, these are important questions that, that we need to wrestle with and not take our Christian faith for granted. Because... Whereas I would say, I would open a book if I wrote it, and I would say, meaningful, meaningful, meaningful. Everything is meaningful. Everything. God created it all. Marriage is meaningful. Parenting is meaningful. Working is meaningful. Studying to be good at a career and to serve others. All of these decisions. Coming to church, worshiping, singing. My voice, my words, it's all meaningful. Life is filled with meaning. You can't empty it of meaning. And yet he starts just the opposite. And it's a good reminder to realize that, that without God, there's a lot to wrestle with. And it doesn't just stay up in here. It filters into, yes, how, why do we even get up in the morning? Why do we even put our clothes on and walk out the door in the daytime? The people wrestle with this. This is real stuff. And Solomon gets a taste of it. So this is what he's kind of learned in his hard, hard life that he has lived and wants to teach us. Everything under the sun is meaningless. Why would he draw that conclusion? Well, if we live in a closed universe and there is nothing but this, then how could we find meaning? We can't, there's nowhere else to draw it from. We're stuck with ourselves. We're stuck with only the physical. He says even if you could find it and grab it, what are you going to do with it? It's like wind. You, what you have in your hands is nothing. Nobody can see it. You can't do anything with it. So no matter how hard we work, we leave the world unchanged. That's kind of his conclusion. So let's jump into this very uplifting book and try to finish the rest of this chapter uh, We'll jump in with verses 4 and 7. Now that you know his attitude and his mindset. So a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. 
there they flow again. So, in in other words, uh, life is just like being on a treadmill. That's all we're doing. You're on your own little gerbil wheel. And you're just paddling away. But you're not getting anywhere here. You determine the generations. Each generation comes and they think they're going to make a a dent. They think they're going to do something. They think all this new energy that they have in their youthfulness is going to get them somewhere and bring change. It's not. It's the same. The wind just comes. The sun goes up. It's the same physical pattern. You have night. You have day. You have the different seasons. Nothing changes there. The water falls Evaporates back up into the sky. So you see, nothing's really changed, he would say. You come, you go. What have you done? The earth is the same for the next generation that comes. Life just keeps coming and coming. What do you do? You do the wash. And what happens? You empty the basket. It's all clean. It's nice and folded. And before you know it, dirty laundry's in there again. You do the dishes. A sink full of dishes, you do them, you wash them, you feel so accomplished. And before you know it, there's dishes in the sink again. You cut the grass. It looks so good when it's finished. A couple of days, a week maybe later, what do you got to do again? You got to cut the grass. It's just this monotony. It's a gerbil wheel. You think you're actually getting somewhere. You think you're changing things, he would say. But you're not. You get a haircut. You look good. You've got to get another one. You get Nothing sticks. Nothing stays complete or finished. You just have to keep working, working, working. And you're busy, 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 but it's never busy enough because you, you can't be so busy and work so hard that you can just do it one time forever and it's done. It doesn't stop. It's like you're in a rut in your life. Now we have our routines and nature has their routines and we're all just kind of stuck in a rut together. And we exhaust ourselves for what? Fruitless repetition. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. It's so miserable. He's like, it's so miserable, it's so tiresome that I don't even know what to call it. You know, this wise man who has a ways, way with words, what do I call the misery of this life? It's like blah. What, you know, how can you explain it? There's no end in sight. So you're getting the point here, I, I trust, from this attitude. How else do you describe life under the sun? That's how he sees it. And it is a routine. We all have our routines. You know, you... You have your routine, some of you, it might be, well, first thing I hear is the alarm clock. And then I get up, and I go straight to the coffee, or straight to get dressed. We all have different routines. I have my coffee, or I get ready for school. I get on the bus. It's the same bus driver. It's the same kids on the bus. Or I, I go to work. It's my same peeps, my peers. About 11 o'clock, I get a hunger pain. About 12 o'clock I eat, about 2 o'clock such and such calls or mom calls or whatever and you just have this routine and you come home and you say hi dear and, you, and then you kiss her goodnight and you get back in bed and you fall asleep and then you hear the alarm clock 
And it goes off and you make your way to the coffee pot and it's, you know, life can be more like that movie Groundhog Day than we realize. It's, it, there's a lot of repetition to it. And you get to do it all over again the next day. Woohoo. Verse 9, the pretenders, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. So he's addressing here this idea that, but we make progress, this argument, but we, we make progress. We, we're helping each other. There are new things and I can do things faster now and, and, and less laboriously and... And he says, uh, not, not really. I mean, it's just like a, a better form of the same thing. You don't have anything new. Well, well what about my iPhone? Now, we've, been communi- we've had ways of communicating for centuries. You're not the first one to, to communicate and to be able to say something or express yourself to other people. You know, indoor plumbing, pasteurized milk, a new version of a computer. What's the big deal? We've had all these things. You just, it's just a different form. And you get all excited about it and you think you're going somewhere with it. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's really not new. So, basically, what are you all excited about? It's not progress. New fashion. New fads that come. They also go. It'll be, it, it's here one day and not here the next, all these things that, that give you a spark of energy and, and make you feel good about yourself, you know, you, you might get addicted to that feeling, but you're not making any progress. You, and, he, and what he means is you didn't cha- really change the condition. You didn't change the condition of the world or man's misery. You didn't get him out of his rut. You just made him maybe a little bit happier in his rut. So you can text faster. Wow. Isn't that great? The world's a better place because you have a phone that you can put in your pocket and you can text your friends anytime. Isn't that just great? Maybe they'll invent underwear with a lifetime warranty someday. (laughs) One pair will do you. Great. It's really going to change the world. You get all fuzzy and emotional about it. You think that new stuff and that feeling, that, that new car that's shinier than any car has ever been is going to validate you? I mean, what's it doing to you? Is that where you get your worth? Is it, that's the only thing that can tingle your soul and give you a good feeling is newness, progress, version 2.0 and then 3.0? Really? We've been wearing clothes since the fall of man. We've, we've communicated, you know. Your grandparents had that stuff. It just wasn't quite as fancy. It's here. So there's nothing new under the sun. And he would say, do those improvements really fix your life? Did the iPhone fix your life? Did it fix your heart? Did it change the condition and the brokenness of the world? See, that's why life is draining. So then he addresses those in verse 11 that say, oh no, I'm changing the world. I'm going to make my mark. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. 
So even if you're stoked on your new improvement that will make life easier, don't get too excited because it won't be remembered. Your invention won't be remembered and you won't be remembered. Yeah, maybe 100 years, maybe more than that. But do you remember your great-grandfather or, you know, 10 generations ago? What was his name? He probably had the same desire as you. I'm going to change the world, or I invented this thing, the world will never be the same. Well, what did he invent? Where is he? What was his name? We don't know. Eventually, all that enthusiasm and all these improvements and all this greatness that you think you're going to bring into the world, nobody's going to know. It doesn't last. Now, what could be next after that? Verses 12 and 13, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And I so you say, wait a minute, he just mentioned God? Yeah, it leaked out. It leaked out, but only to say that if there is a God, boy, what an unhappy place this is. It's a life of toil but one thing I have to give Solomon is he is driven he was a driven man he really wanted to get to the bottom of things this wisdom that the Lord had given him he wants to go after life he he wants to go after it hard he wants to figure it out and he's got if anybody has the means and the resources to do it it's King Solomon I mean he has endless wealth so for the his worldview of God sneaks in there a little bit, but he's determined to find out. And he, he concludes 14 and 15, I've seen everything. I sought after it. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. And behold, here's his conclusion. I was right. All is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, I took high road, I took the low road, and you know what? It didn't do me any good. It didn't fix man's problems. It really didn't matter what kind of life I lived and the decisions I made. The world's still the same. There's still an angst in man. There's still a longing. There's still aloneness. You you can't straighten what's crooked about this world. You can't fill up what's empty. It's still empty after all I have done and all I have pursued. He used all of his five senses. He used all of his kingly resources to find this meaning. And he said, it's not out there. It's fruitless. It doesn't fix anything. Verses 16 through 18, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. The opposite of wisdom, I'd say. And perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So it's almost as if if somebody just, if, if you claim meaning, you found it, uh, I beg to differ because I've tried everything. I've tried everything. I've been there I've done that. I did the straight and narrow. I did the crooked path. And the result at the end was the same. It's meaningless. So, in other words, I took the high road. I took the life of the rich and the famous. I used my riches 
I did not deny myself of any trinket that I wanted. I, I, I experienced every kind of uh, emotion that you can when it comes to these things. The uh, Spending ridiculous amounts of money on novelties and specialties and privileges. I took that high road of the finer things. And what did I find? Did it satisfy me? No. So then I take the low road, the, the road of uh, what they might consider the low lives. I didn't work, you know, or I might only just work enough so I can have food in my mouth. I took the life of no responsibility and, and uh, minimalism where I just rid myself of all the riches. I did just the opposite. Maybe that real simple life, you know, just me and my red solo cup. And NASCAR, that's all I want. That's all I care about. I'm just going to live for that. I don't have any responsibilities. I did that too. And what did I find at the end of that? Meaninglessness. So if you're going to try to tell me the grass is greener, no matter where we think we are in that spectrum, and you're going to try to tell me that the grass is greener if you were doing this or if you were doing this, it's not. Because I've done them all. I saw this madness and folly. How's that for a Debbie Downer? So welcome to life, he says. It's meaningless, in case you wondered. But honestly, we do need to think about these questions. Where would I be without Christ? What would my life look like? How would I find joy? How would I find meaningless? And it also helps us to sympathize or empathize with others. You know, the idea is that we need to come to the same conclusion as Solomon, and that is there is a human dilemma. There is a human problem. There is an anxiety in the soul, a loneliness and a longingness that cannot be satisfied with the things in this world, whether you take the high road or the low road. And all he did was try to be consistent. If there is no God, if this is all there is, then I've got to find what we have to work with. And his conclusion was, it's not good. It's not satisfying. There's nothing on Middle Earth that can fix the, the brokenness. There's nothing on Middle Earth that can straighten that which is crooked. We need something from above. So let me close with this. About 900 years after Solomon came another wise man. And his name was Jesus Christ. And he is the one. He is the hope. He is the one that came from above. He was that which was above the sun. And he came into this world in the form of man. And he was God's savior. And he was the one sent to straighten out the crooked. And to fill that which was empty. Matthew twelve forty two. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. See, Solomon knew the, the, the dilemma. He nailed it, but he couldn't fix it. His wealth, his wisdom couldn't fix the dilemma. He could just point it out and show us how miserable it is. This hopeless condition. But Jesus came not just to inform, but to transform. 
And when we acknowledge Him as reality, as our reality, as our Maker, as our Creator, and yes, as the King and Savior that God sent Him, when we recognize Him, then that the empty void is filled. And we do look at life differently. And everything does matter. I've shared it with you before that one of the, the profoundest impacts that I had in my salvation experience first was just the lifting of the burden of sin. I mean, I really felt light, just like the songs sing about. I, I, I experienced that and felt that like, wow, the burdens are gone. And then when I walked out into the world the next day, I saw it with new eyes. And everything was the same physically, but different because my perspective has changed because Christ transformed the way I looked at life. Because now all I see is life. Now all I see is meaning. Trees have meaning. Grass has meaning. Our work, our jobs, how we dress, what we say, what we look at, all of this, it is packed with meaning. The apostle says we even eat and drink to the glory of God. Simple things, our fellowship meal after this. The Lord's Supper, when we come and the way we do it, it's all absolutely packed with meaning because of this man that came that was wiser than Solomon. And he came to reconcile that which was alienated and broken that causes the angst in 2 Corinthians 5. We studied this book and you'll remember that the Apostle Paul says that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself. He's bringing us back to Himself through Christ, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. Our lives have meaning. We are evangelists. We are kingdom proclaimers. We are the ones that tell the world the truth about Christ. And He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So when we acknowledge the problem and we recognize Christ as God's lifeline to man's dilemma, we're reconciled to Him. We're reconciled to He who is above the, God, the, the, the Son that came and now we have, can have Christ living in us and we can fellowship with Him. Talk about meaning. How meaningful is it for us to pray when you are conversing with the living triune God. You get to talk to Him. And how important is He if He created all this and, and accomplished all this? And yet, He beckons us just to come and walk with Him and do life with Him and learn with Him and grow in Him. It is an amazing, amazing thing. Without God, we go back to what? Nothing. And with Him, we have Everything. So let's just enjoy God today. Let's just enjoy His grace. Let's enjoy His gift of salvation. Let's enjoy the wisdom and the revelation that He has given us. Let's be the people of God with our hearts and our minds and our souls. Sing for joy on Middle Earth. May God bless the preaching of His Word.